Psalm 32. You just got to see most of it. I think most of the words from the psalm were there. You got to love a passage that has something about don't be a horse or a mule. Amen? Uh, it's just something about that. Maybe it's just because I grew up with horses. I understand that imagery all too well. And you kind of get the feeling if somebody's telling you don't be as stubborn as a horse or a mule, that they probably went through a time in their life where they were as stubborn as a horse or a mule. You get that? Amen? I think that's probably the case. Um, some of you are still sleeping, so I'm not going to get a response from you, right? Amen. Let's look out there. Anyway, it's, uh, it's a good week to study this. I'm, I'm excited about it. I got to tell you, though, I'm kind of tired. Um, I appreciate very much this being the kind of church that allows pastors to go and do other ministry as well. Some of you probably thought I was on vacation last week. I was not. I was um, using what we call my ministry week. Um, the church gives me a week where I can go and do ministry of another kind, either a youth camp or sometimes a camp meeting. In this case, I was chaperoning a mission trip for some juniors from CCS, Calhoun Christian School, which, by the way, our sister church on the other side of town, which no longer exists, actually had a big part in starting that school. And so we share some DNA with that school. We had a big part in, in being a part of that. And some of the people that used to attend that church now attend our church. And so we kind of have a stake in that. And that makes me very proud. I grew up at a Christian school. I'm very thankful that that option is there for the community to use. But anyway, so we were in Washington, D.C. for a week with, um, I think we had eight students and there were three of us adults. And so it was a really crazy experience. I got to tell you, um, I am very glad to be back in Michigan where people do not ride bikes 30 miles an hour down the sidewalks and drive like crazy people. Um, well, I mean, at least not here in Battle Creek, we don't drive like crazy people um, compared to D.C. Okay, we still drive like crazy people, just not like D.C. people drive, but it, it was a great week. Um, I got to see a Franciscan monastery. We helped in the garden there, in the garden of that monastery. At first, I was kind of a little bit bitter because I'm like, man, here we are working at this place. We should be at a soup kitchen or something. All we're doing is helping them bring out their summer plants that they pulled in so they wouldn't freeze so the gardens can look pretty. It wasn't until later in our visit that I found out that that uh, Franciscan monastery has a garden that has literally fed thousands and thousands of people over the last few years. In fact, during COVID, the food banks were coming to the monastery to try to get food because they couldn't get it anywhere else. And so it was really cool to see that experience and how um, various ministries were combining just to create and, and to provide services for people that needed it. Anyway, all of that to simply say, um, I'm glad to be back and I'm thankful for those who stepped up. Um, you guys are second service people. You probably didn't notice all the shenanigans that went on first service, but I was literally driving to DC and trying to listen to the service on the live stream. And I kept getting interrupted by phone calls from people in the building saying, this broke, that broke, something's not working. What do we do to fix it? It was really hard to worship that way, but everything worked out. I mean, to the point that the new TV I just installed died, brand new TV died. Satan was in the building, I swear to you, last. The batteries in the mouse in the live stream room died last week. I mean, just pick the week that I'm gone to do all of that. Crazy stuff, but I'm very thankful that we have volunteers here who step up and who take over so that some of us can be gone from time to time. And didn't Pat do a great job with the sermon? I thought he did a fantastic job with that. And so you can clap or pat him on the back later if you want to. It might have been a pity clap, Pat. I'm just saying it might have been. Anyway, no, he did a great job. I enjoy listening to him preach, and um, it's, it's good to see his growth there. And, and to tackle a psalm. That's the second time I've given you the text, and you had to do it. 
I'm going to pick a really good one. Somebody wanted me to give him the one with 119 verses. I'd said no. So Psalm 32, as we've been doing, I'm just going to kind of sit down in the psalm. We're going to study it together. I'm going to start by reading um, just a section at a time. There's several sections that the psalm is kind of broken up into. The first section you might call a little bit of an introduction where David is just kind of speaking to the reader or the person hearing the song, if it was actually sung, or something along those lines. They're just some general statements that are good for us to hear. So let's, let's kind of review this together. Psalm 32, starting in verse 1, a psalm of David. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Now, if we take a look at, at kind of the beginning here, those words, what joy, in the older translation are translated in a little bit different way. They're translated as the word blessed. Blessed is the person um, who is, blessed is the person whose sins are forgiven, whose, or whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are covered. That's what one of the older translations says. And those words that, that are translated, what joy, are literally to be translated um, blessed. And, and if you look at it carefully, they're constructed just like another passage of Scripture in the New Testament that we studied not too long ago called the Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5. Jesus shares a whole list of things that, that we called, when I was a kid, we called them the blesseds. But uh, technically, they're called the Beatitudes, and they're literally just statements of blessing. And so David kind of phrases the first verse in the same way, or the first two verses in that same way. So these are kind of two beatitudes. He says, blessed are those whose disobedience is forgiven or whose sin is put out of sight. Blessed are those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt. You could almost read them that way. Now, as we continue on, he, he kind of puts this sin idea. He describes it in three different ways here. He first says uh, the word, uses the word disobedience, you know, whose disobedience is forgiven. And if you kind of look at the root meaning of that word, the idea here is more of a transgression or rebellion. How many of you have ever done something wrong and you absolutely knew it was wrong and you just decided to do it anyway? How many of you have ever done that in your entire life? Some of you are liars right now and you are choosing to lie to me. I just know it. Um, transgression, something that you deliberately meant to do, you knew what to do, you didn't do it, you did the opposite. That's literally a transgression. That's what he's kind of talking about with this word disobedience. Then the second part of it, he uses the word sin, which is more of a kind of a general term. But again, going back to the root, it, it kind of means the idea of missing the mark or wandering off course. How many of you have ever done something that you thought was okay and later someone pointed out to you, your wife, that it was definitely sin or the wrong thing to do? Anybody ever have that experience where you didn't mean to do anything wrong, you just kind of did it by accident? I, I hate to say it, but that happens. It does. There, there is this wonderful scenario where you know Christians would always know the right thing to do, but unfortunately, that's not how it goes. That's why we need the Spirit's guidance in our lives. Sometimes it's there. And that, that word sin has to do with that idea of just wandering from the path, not necessarily blatant disobedience, but maybe something that you did that you didn't mean to do. And then finally, the last one he gives is, is used by the word, uh, the English word is guilt. And it has to do with iniquity, depravity, moral distortion. It kind of gets down more to the root of the problem, the state 
that human beings are in because of our fallenness and because of what Adam and Eve chose to do in the Garden of Eden, that seed of sin that has been passed down to us. Now, just like he describes sin in three different ways, he also kind of describes God's response to that in three different ways. The first word that he uses is uh, to be forgiven, whose disobedience in verse 1 is forgiven. Uh, Forgiven, it means to, it's literally the removing of a burden from someone. When I was in high school, I read the, the, the um, book Pilgrim's Progress, where the author does a marvelous job of painting a picture of a pilgrim who's trying to make a journey with a huge, heavy weight on his back. And as the book progresses, the weight gets heavier and heavier and heavier, and he uses that imagery amazingly well. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never had to carry a burden on my back, but I've carried plenty of versions, in, er, plenty of versions, um, plenty of burdens. Wow, it's going to be that kind of day. Uh, Burdens in front of me because I grew up on a farm. And on a farm, you lift everything this way, not necessarily this way. How many of you have ever bailed hay? Raise your hand if you've ever bailed hay. How many of you bailed hay the real way and not the sissy way without those big round bales, the little square bales that you had to lift by hand? Yeah, those big round bales are sissy's work. I'm just saying... Because you get to use a tractor. If I, man, if I was a kid and I got to use a tractor to move the bales of hay, I'd have been in heaven. Amen? Anytime I could get on dad's tractor and open that thing up, I was a happy guy. But we had to carry him around by hand. And my dad would be bailing hay in the field. And every once in a while, we'd miss one or he didn't get back fast enough and one would fall off. And he'd be like, Jeff, go get that bale. And I'd hop off the wagon and I'd go to get the bale. And he would take off. Like, I'd be carrying the bale of hay, trying to catch up to the wagon, which is moving forward in the field. Because, you know, you're, you're young, you can catch up. And I got to tell you, carrying a bale of hay that's almost the size you are is not a fun thing. And I can remember that feeling of relief when I finally made it to the wagon, usually because the baler broke, because the baler broke once around almost. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And I would plop that thing down, and man, the relief that I felt. Some of you have carried heavy burdens, and you know what that feels like. And that's kind of the imagery that he's using here, um, to to be freed from that burden. Um, The second imagery that he gives us for forgiveness uh, is not the word forgiveness per se. He says that they have been put out of sight or, or literally covered so that the sight of it cannot offend a holy God. That's kind of the imagery here is, is God has covered your sin. He doesn't want to see it anymore. He's not looking at it anymore. It's been covered up by the blood of Jesus. It's gone, it's over with, it's done, and it's no longer in sight so that God can no longer see it. And then finally, the last image that he gives us is the idea of being cleared of guilt, cleaned of guilt. He says, whose record the Lord has cleared of their guilt. And it's literally the idea of canceling a debt. How many of you have debt in your life? Raise your hand. I owe money on a house. I owe money on cars. I owe money on a camper that's for sale, by the way. I owe money on credit cards. I owe money on all kinds of stuff. I've even got student loans still. I've been out of school for 150 years. And it's not my loan. It's my son's. But I still have debt. I I got debt all over the place. Let me tell you something. If somebody walked into my life right now and said, your debt's all canceled. You own your house. You own your car. You can take that expensive insurance off that car and put the cheap stuff on it. You're good to go. I would be so happy. How many of you would be happy? 
Oh, it would feel like you were flying high. Listen, that's the imagery here. Sin causes that debt load. And, and the idea here is that it's canceled. And so he gives us this imagery of sin in three different ways and then of forgiveness in three different ways. All of this leading up to being able to describe your life as being lived in complete honesty before God. And this, my friends, is what God desires from us. Honesty. Don't hide your sin from God. Be honest about your sin. Be honest about your faith or the lack thereof. God desires honesty about our faith, our belief, our sin, and our struggles. How many times have we as parents been in that situation that God is often in with us where we watch our children struggle with some problem that they don't want to tell us about. And we know what they did, but they don't want to tell us, so we don't want to help them because they haven't told us. And so they struggle with this idea. And if they would just be honest with us, we could take that weight off of them, but they refuse to do it. And I think God sits in heaven and looks at us and like, why are you carrying that? I'm, I'm here. I'm ready to do it. Just be honest with me. Um, blessed are those, what joy for those whose lives are lived in complete honesty before God. And then David continues on in verse 3, kind of changes temperature a little bit and addresses God directly. Let's hear what he has to say. Verse 3, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. And then there's this interlude. And I believe the interludes in this particular section are placed because David needed a minute. Because you see, what I, I forgot to mention when we started this conversation was that this psalm, like Psalm 51, was a psalm that was written in response to the experience that inspired Psalm 51 a few weeks ago. And that was, of course, David's sin with Bathsheba and the fact that he murdered her husband just so that he wouldn't look bad and then took her as his wife after committing adultery with her. And if you remember the story, Nathan the prophet confronted David with his sin. And even though David confessed, it was a hard time after that because there were consequences to his sin that David had to weed his way through. And we believe that this psalm was written probably months later, maybe even years later, as kind of a looking back kind of experience uh, looking back on that experience and, and reflecting on it. And so in this moment, as he talks about his sin and how it affected him, he just needs to take that interlude moment. The, in the Hebrew, it's selah, but in this, it's simply you know, given as an interlude, I guess guitar solo or something there. But I more picture him just needing a moment to compose himself. And then he continues on, finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, self... <laughs> No, that's not what it says. I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. And then another interlude, another moment where maybe David just needs a second because he remembers the feeling of what it felt like to be forgiven from all of that sin. He continues, therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment, for you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. And then once again, that, that word Selah or interlude that comes up as David takes a moment. Again, 
in this passage, David addresses God directly. It's almost like he's reminiscing with an old friend. Have you ever gotten together with somebody that you haven't seen in a very long time, maybe a childhood friend or something, and you get together over you know, a Coke or over a coffee, and, and you're sitting there, and one of you pipes up and says, hey, do you remember that time when? You ever had that experience? And then they tell a story that you really hope your children never hear about, Right? Right? Now, see, first service was a little more willing to admit that with smiles. Some of you just looked terrified when I said that. Oh, boy, look out. But, you know, reminiscing like that with someone that you know and someone that you have relationship can be a very special thing. And that's almost the feel that I get as David is unpacking this whole story, as he's addressing God re- directly. It's almost like he's saying to God, do you remember that time? He, he recalls what life was like when he wasn't honest with God about his sin, when he refused to confess his sin before God. And, and according to the story from 2 Samuel, to us, the appearances that David immediately said to the prophet, I have sinned before the Lord, but chances are pretty good. What happened was the moment the prophet left, David probably started rationalizing. I know none of you would ever do that, but he probably started thinking, well, you know, Bathsheba shouldn't really have been out on that rooftop anyway. Probably her fault. Maybe, just maybe, there were thoughts like that that went through his head because he obviously struggled with this sin. And so as he thinks about that, he remembers how it impacted him physically. It says his body wasted away. He groaned all the day long. His strength evaporated like water. And then, of course, that interlude, that reflection, maybe some tears were there during that time. Because you know what? If you hide your sin from God for long, or from anyone. If you live with that guilt, if you live with that strife in your life, it will eventually have a physical effect on you. I have experienced that in my past. If you carry the burden of sin by yourself, it has a tendency to weigh you down and mess you up, and it can even cause physical issues. I believe it because I've experienced it, and I would share an example with you from my own life, but I would love for you to believe that I'm perfect, so I'm not going to. But I think most of you know better than that. Listen, if you don't confess your guilt to God, it will impact you in ways that you can never dream or imagine. David says, my body began to waste away. I was exhausted. It is exhausting to live with a lie. Come clean. Be free. How much better it is for us if we would just be honest with ourselves and with God and with, you know, while we're at it with each other about our failings and our sins. He kind of continues the recollection time and remembers what it felt like when he finally gave gave in and and came clean. He confessed. He he stopped trying to hide his guilt. And and he said to himself, I I love that, I said to myself, "I, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. And then he takes a deep breath. At least that's how I imagine it. That selah, that interlude was probably for him to catch his breath because the grace of God is so good that it can take your breath away. And those feelings of forgiveness that must have been there. You forgave me. All my guilt is gone. And then he goes on and says, let all the godly pray um, while there is still time before they drown in the floodwaters of judgment. Um, And then he he gets into the section where he he says these things about God in verse 7. I love that. For you are my hiding place. You know, a good song should always talk about God and who he is. Um, A good song should always, uh, should never just be about us. It should always be about God and his goodness and not only what he's done, but how good he is. And, And he includes that. You are my hiding place. 
my protection. And Thursday of this week, we visited the um, Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. And some of you might know that there's a lady by the name of Corrie Ten Boom who wrote a biography about her experience being a Jew living in Nazi Germany during the time of the Holocaust. When I was a child, when I was in school, Christian school, I had to read her book, which I believe is titled Hiding Place. I could be wrong, but I believe that's the case. I'm getting a nod from the one who knows. Yes. Um, the hiding place. And, and she describes her experience of how they would literally hide underneath the, or the, the Jews would hide underneath their table, underneath the floor, and they as a family would sit around the very table where Jews were hiding beneath as the German soldiers came in, knowing that if the German soldiers found them hiding Jews underneath their table, they would immediately be arrested and possibly killed. And they had to sit there in that house while the Germans searched, knowing that just a few inches below them was certain death. And she described her, her life story, her biography, as the hiding place. I think probably she was meaning not only that place under their table, but I have a feeling she had read this passage as well. I don't know about you, but as a believer in Christ who follows Jesus and as a, a parent who has children that he has to raise and as a grandparent who's trying to figure out how to do that and as a husband who's trying to support his family and love his wife, sometimes I feel like I need a hiding place. Do you? Am I the only one? Life is hard, and every once in a while, we just need protection, and the psalmist gives us that, that protection. You are my hiding place. And then he goes on. He says, you protect us. You, he celebrates what God does. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory, and I believe he still does that today. That was not an ancient thing. That's a today thing. And little Isaiah, his grandson, who is now home from the hospital, is a testimony to that. You know, if I was writing Isaiah's story, I would have made things go even more perfect than they already did. But God has wisdom beyond what we can see, doesn't he? And he has protected that little guy since before he came out of the womb. It's an amazing story, and we believe it's going to continue. Um, <laughs> when he got home, first thing he went, did is went outside and skinned his knee all up. He had to have Band-Aids. Isn't that just like a kid? Some of you haven't been parents. You don't understand the irony of that, but it's hilarious to me. I just think that's great. I hope he skins a couple more knees up by the end of the week. Um, just loving doing what he does. Anyway, so he talks about what God does. He is our protection. Um, and then the last little interlude there is to compliment, uh, contemplate who God is and probably just set, spend a minute in God's presence. Then David continues in verse 8. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. This is David recording God's words in this conversation. Um, I don't know how David heard God. Um, I don't know if God actually said these words out loud to him. That's not the way it usually happens with me. Um, God speaks in different ways, but David quotes God, like literally puts quotation marks around the words. I, I'm sure that was added in English, but the idea here in the Hebrew is very, very clear. This is what the Lord of heaven said to me. Now, if you're one of those people that's ever heard from God, there's just something about when God speaks and you, you know it's him. 
You know in your knower, as somebody that I used to listen to says, how many of you have a knower? I don't even know what that is, but I got to tell you, in the times of my life where I've heard God speak, you just knew unmistakably that it was his voice. And David knew that this was God. And so he quotes what God says to him. And I got to tell you, this is the meat of why I chose this text. These two verses are the whole part about guidance. So this is the part I actually want to preach on. First service, I actually got a few <gasps> like gasps because they thought, this is the preface? You know, no, I promise I'll be done soon. But this is really the meat of the text. But here's the thing. You can't get to the guidance until you do the other stuff. You can't follow God's guidance until you're honest with God about your failings and your failures and your sin. You can't possibly listen to a God that you're holding things back from. So until you get this first part right, talking about his leadership and his guidance is irrelevant because until you have relationship, you're not going to follow him anyway. Because the way that we follow him is much like we read about in Psalm 23, the other passage that I read earlier today. Um, I love the fact that David uses the imagery of a shepherd. Do you know why? Because David started out a shepherd. He was out in the fields leading his father's flocks and, and protecting them and guiding them. He didn't, you know, talk about leading them to green pastures and beside still waters because he heard about somebody doing it or saw it on TV. David did it. He was the one responsible for the sheep. He was the one who protected them, who made sure that they had what they needed. He understood the role of a shepherd probably better than anybody else. And the way that shepherd would lead their sheep back then was that they would call out to them and the sheep would hear their voice and they would follow him. Jesus even commented on that. And so in these you know, videos of old times, sometimes in the movies, if they get it right, you'll see these flocks of sheep coming together at a crossroads, and the shepherds are headed in opposite directions, and they cross each other, and there's this moment of mass pandemonium where all the sheep are everywhere. And you're thinking to yourself, how in the world are they ever going to figure out whose is whose? And as the shepherds begin to leave the, the grouping, they call out to their sheep, and it's my understanding that the sheep know their shepherd's voice. And they follow the shepherd. That's a pretty amazing thing if you think about it. But let me tell you, the sheep can't learn the shepherd's voice unless the shepherd spends an awful lot of time talking to the sheep. And before you can ever hear the voice of God leading you and guiding you into the path that he's chosen for you, you have to first spend an awful lot of time with the shepherd, listening to his voice, not just talking to him, but listening for him and hearing what he has to say and studying his word. You know why? Because if you study God's word, then you learn the kind of things that God would say and the kind of things that he absolutely would not say. Because let me tell you something, there are some voices speaking today that are not speaking the kind of words, even though they're speaking for God, that are not speaking the kind of words that the Bible tells us God would say. And we need to be able to discern his voice 
What an amazing imagery. And that's why I wanted to pull Psalm 23 into this, because this passage gets it right. You have to first be honest with God, and then his leadership, his guidance, he will guide you along the best pathway for your life, because he is the best guide and the best advisor you will ever find for your life. How many of you have ever had a human being lead you astray? Anybody ever gotten wrong directions to somewhere? Let me tell you something else you should never do in Washington, D.C., ask for directions. Follow your GPS. It's the only way. It's just the only way. Listen, I got to tell you, there are human beings in this world that will give you direction. And you know what? As hard as they may try to be right, if they're human, they will eventually be wrong. Can I just tell you that um, I consider myself, because I'm up here, uh, somewhat of an expert on the idea of God's leading and his guidance, simply because I've been doing my best for almost 30 years now in ministry to listen to the voice of God. And there are people that have, have been in every congregation that I've been a part of that for whatever reason look to the pastor to be their advisor and their guide for spiritual life. And I gotta tell you, in the church of God, we believe in something called the priesthood of all believers. And what that means is that every single one of you have a gift to contribute to the body. Every single one of you should have a job to do in the body of Christ. We need every one of you to do your part. And we believe that what I do up front is just another one of those jobs. I'm not any more important than any one of you. I just have a different role in the body of Christ than you do. Some of you are looking at me like you've never heard this before. Listen, I'm just one of the sheep. I'm following the shepherd too. Now, part of my role is to do my best to help the other sheep to find the shepherd, to help them to follow the shepherd. And I will do my utmost in that capacity. I will try to give you biblical advice. I will try to tell you the, the smartest stuff I know. I will try to direct you and advise you in the best way possible. But I got to tell you, I'm human. And because of that, I will eventually let you down if you try to follow me. The only one who will ever, never let you down is Jesus. He's the good shepherd. We're all kind of ranchers. I don't know what imagery there is with sheep. You know, we're, that doesn't really fit us, does it, Pat? I used to wear cowboy boots when I was young. But, you know, we're just kind of like God's under shepherds, I guess you'd say. We're trying our best, but God is the one who is the guide. He's the one who leads. And if you follow him, you will find your path through life. He will lead you, as Psalm 23 says, to green meadows and still waters through the right paths. And, and even when the hard times come, I love the older translations that say, the valley of the shadow of death. Doesn't that sound imposing? Even in that, God will be there with us, leading us through. He is right there with us. God loves his sheep, and we are his sheep. And that means he loves us. In fact, I want you to say this with me. Say, um, God loves his sheep. Good job. Now say, I am a sheep. Some of you are a little reluctant on that one. Now say, God loves me. Do you believe it? Do you know it? Because if he loves you, there's absolutely no reason you shouldn't follow him. He goes on and continues. Um, with the closing of this text, which I know some of you are anxious to get to. Verses 10 and 11, he says this, Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. 
So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. Um, David concludes with a comparison of what he has discovered are the two ways you can live your life. You can either disobey God and you will eventually find sorrow. Now, I know what some of you are saying. Pastor, you know, I didn't spend most of my life obeying God and I was pretty happy. Things went okay for me. And let me tell you something. If you disobey God, if you go the direction that he is not designed for you, eventually it will lead to a path that is filled with sorrow. There is, there is maybe happiness in the moment when you disobey God. But eventually there is a price to pay, and eventually you will have to pay it. And that price is sorrow. David says many sorrows come to the wicked or those who do not follow. But unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. Listen, if you are honest with God, if you trust in God, if you're willing to confess your sins and allow him to lead and guide your life, then you will find the chesed of God. I can't even say it right. It's a, it's a Hebrew word. It's kind of fun to say. Go ahead and say it, but try not to spit on the person in front of you. Chesed. You got to get it from the throat right here. Chesed. Chesed is the easier way to say it, but it's not correct. And that word is found throughout the Old Testament, and it describes the unfailing mercy, the unfailing love of God. Hesed is the reason that God didn't give up on Israel, even though they turned their backs on him every five minutes. Hesed means that God will not give up on you. That's what is in store for those who follow him, who trust in him. So rejoice in the Lord. Listen, if you're trusting in him, there is no reason you shouldn't be rejoicing. The last verse is the reason that I believe David wrote this probably years after the experience with Bathsheba and not simply days or weeks. Because what he went through in the wake of his sin and repentance is not something that would cause shouts of joy. You see, joy eventually comes to us after we grieve our sin but it's not an immediate thing. Some of you may be still in that phase where you have confessed your sin to God and he's in the process of doing all of those things that he's promised in this passage to do, uh, canceling the debt, covering your sin, giving you the forgiveness, dropping the weight. He's doing all that for you, but maybe you're still in process and it's hard to think about being joyful, but let me tell you, if you persist and you're honest with him, and you allow him to lead you, eventually you will be able to do what David commands. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are are pure. Listen, the pure of heart don't have pure hearts because they're perfect. They have pure hearts because they were honest with God about their sin, and they've been forgiven. Let's pray. God in heaven, I thank you for this story, uh, rather this psalm of David that is based around a story, a story that we know and unfortunately is one that maybe some of us have lived out ourselves. We know that in this room, there are probably people that have lived their share of disappointing lives before God. Each one of us has made mistakes, some by our own rebellion and our own choice, some because maybe we didn't know better, some because of the sin nature that is within us. And Lord, I pray that right now you would help us to understand that The route to forgiveness and the route to a life that is filled with joy is simple. It's honesty with you. It is confessing our sins before you. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all 
unrighteousness. And the only thing that we have to do is be willing to confess, to be willing to follow your leadership, to be willing to trust in you. I pray that if there are those here today that have not taken that step and confessed their sin before you, that you would give them just a hunger to be forgiven and and allow them the courage to come and talk with me about how to do that. I pray that for those that may be going through difficult times, maybe because of of some sin in their lives, that you would help them to be honest with you about their failings and, and to confess it and to receive the forgiveness that you offer and to then work their way through that moment so that they can sing for joy one day before you. And I thank you, God, for those who are here that have put most of their sin, I'm sure they fail occasionally, but there are those who are progressing in that journey toward you and and have put many of their sins behind them. I pray that you would help them to be diligent, that sin doesn't creep back in after we have conquered it. We know that it is an ever-present temptation for even those of us who have been walking with you for many years. More than anything, God, I pray that you would help this church to be a place where we sing and we shout for joy because we have been honest with you and our hearts are pure. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, be a good sheep, and then you can be dismissed. Happy Mother's Day. Have a great afternoon.